Welcome to Finn's Fish Tales. These are my stories. I made them all up. Hello and welcome to the third part of The Patriots. It's a six-part and all episodic podcast which I'll be releasing on a weekly basis. I hope you're enjoying it so far, and I'd just like to say a big thank you to everybody who's been listening in. I've been getting contact from people from around the world, from uh, countries such as Sweden, France, Japan, England, the United States, and of course Ireland and Canada. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy part three. The Patriots, part three. In the narrow hallway, Sean straightens his short collar, preparing for a date with Nula. As he tries to flatten his constantly wavy hair, his sister Beth comes up from behind him, leers over his shoulder and talks to his reflection. Look at you, arse hanging out your trousers and not a bob to your name. Be quiet, says Sean. Just be careful, she continues. Her family isn't going to welcome you with open arms. We'll be all right, says Sean. I hope you are, I really do says Beth as she disappears into the living room. Sean is looking smart as he navigates his bicycle through laneways and side streets, over the Harlds Cross Bridge and down from Basel Street. He glides past Leopold Bloom's fictional home as the fresh afternoon air breezes through his hair, undoing all the patting down flat work, unleashing his ever-persistent curls. The hill rolls on and he seldom pedals before reaching the four corners of hell the unofficial name given to the crossroads with a pub on each corner, all remaining at large under the often blind eye of St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's in temporary armistice as he turns into Kevin Street and towards St. Stephen's Green. He dismounts with a rolling stop as he nears the entrance, chaining his bike to the iron fencing that surrounds the green. He untucks his chain-side trousers from inside his sock and makes one last futile attempt at taming his rebellious locks. It's more of a pointless compulsion or a tick at this stage, if he was being honest. He enters with his head slightly aloft like we do when we're looking for something or someone, as though the extra stretch will greatly improve our powers of observation. He makes his way over to the bench where he regularly meets Nula and sits upright in warm anticipation. Hello, young Sean. A voice from behind enters his ear. Sean turns his head. It's Tug. Sean turns to face him as he stands. Hello, Sergeant. Is it young Miss Bork you were expecting? inquires Tug with a knowing smirk. Yes, replies Sean, confused as to how Tug knew and why he was asking. Well, Sean, she won't be joining you today, or any other day for that matter. What, what do you mean? asks Sean nervously. Tug smiles and looks Sean up and down. Well, her father had a word with me, asked me to persuade you nicely to cut all ties with young Miss Bork. So this is me telling you nicely. What has Nula to say about all this? asks Sean, beginning to rattle. Her father has put an end to your little romance. He doesn't want his daughter cavorting about the city with a goodier from Skid Row. Sure, come off it, Sean. Where did you think it was all going to go? Sean's nervous energy begins to channel and centre. If myself and Nula want to see each other, there's nobody can stop us, he declares. Tug's condescension turns sour at the idea of being challenged. You'll do what you're told, you young pup. The likes of you has no business being in the company of a lady like her. Tug begins to fluster as he leans in towards Sean. Your family is from dirt and you'll always be dirt. A rush of pressure travels from Sean's core, through his shoulder, and as he draws his elbow back, 
works its way along his arm to his clenched fist. It's driven by all the crooked looks and side-eyed shopkeepers, the years of being made to feel less than, the idea that he is to forever know his place. It lets his fists fly, because not today. Sean hears no sound, but he can still see that Tug is berating him. He sees his lips flap and a flash of shock enter his eyes as his knuckles connect with Tug's cheekbone, knocking Tug, arse about tit, onto the grass with a clump. Maybe it was Tug already off balance due to his leaning into Sean, but it doesn't matter. He's down on the ground and Sean's adrenaline is in full flow and doesn't care. Tug is speechless as he looks up in shock. Sean becomes gravely aware of his situation and flees the scene. You're done now, boy. You're done, shouts Tug after him with reclaimed authority and gasping boil as he smears the spittle from his mouth with the back of his hand. Slipped on the wet grass, he'll tell himself when recalling this. Tug scowls at some passerboys as he stands himself up and dusts himself off. Now outside the gates, Sean unchains his bike and runs with it a few yards before jumping onto the saddle and pedalling with frenzy. All the stories he's heard about Tug race through his head. The beatings, the disappearances, the two young kids Beth had told him Tug had sent to a boy's home for stealing an ice cream. He needed to get gone and fast. At the depot, the lads are putting together some stepladders and boards for their trip. After a time, they convene inside the hut. Cutouts of the painting adorn the wall with their new monikers written upon them. Leo and the lads start to go over the plan once more. But as they begin, someone raps on the outside of the hut. Before the lads can inquire as to who it might be, two men step inside. They are known to the lads, known to the area. Hello, boys, beams one of the men. It's so convenient to have you all here, isn't it, Mr. O'Shea? Indeed it is, Mr. Shaughnessy, indeed it is, replies O'Shea. What's this all about, says Eddie. Shaughnessy gestures to the brochure cutouts of the paintings. Just a bit of decorating for the hut, says Connor. Shaughnessy sighs. Do you hear that, Mr. O'Shea? I did, Mr. Shaughnessy, I certainly did. Shaughnessy continues. You lads know who we represent, and you know who we represent sees and hears all. Everything, adds O'Shea. As Shaughnessy draws a breath to continue, the lot, concludes O'Shea. Shaughnessy pauses to be sure O'Shea is done. We heard about your little trip over to London. What of it? It wouldn't bother anything you would be up to, says Leo, annoyed at the interference. Shaughnessy puts his hand on his heart. I'm aghast, he says. Aghast, says O'Shea. And what would you know about what we were up to, asks Shaughnessy. Nothing, says Eddie, placing his hand on Leo's shoulder to quiet him. Shaughnessy turns to O'Shea. What does Mr. Logistics say, Mr. O'Shea? We've always something on the brew. That's right, says Shaughnessy. We can't have people causing a stir. In short, we don't want any undue attention. No, sir, adds O'Shea. Shaughnessy looks to him, then back to the lads and rolls his eyes. We don't mean to cause any butter, says Connor. Shaughnessy smiles. Well, you lads are in luck. Mr. Logistics knows what you are up to, and he gives you all his blessing. The lads smile, relieved. But a curious Leo asks, why? Shaughnessy looks to O'Shea, then back to Leo. Let's just say he's a patron of the arts, says Shaughnessy, as he winks and nods to the cutouts on the hut wall. Well, Mr. O'Shea and I must away. Safe travels, lads. And with a wave of his hand, both men duck back outside. Connor gets up to look out the door after them. The lads all look relieved. They're gone, says Connor, as he makes his way over to the teapot. Jesus, how did they get wind of this, asks Eddie, as he gestures to the cutouts. It doesn't matter, I suppose. They know. Connor pours himself a cup of tea. We'll have to watch our backs better, he says. 
the lads nod in agreement. As they step through the depot gates and onto the street, O'Shea tugs on Shaughnessy's sleeve. Why is Mr. Logistics letting them do what they like? asks O'Shea. Mr. Logistics says if they get away with it, there'll be eyes off us for a bit, and if they get caught, they'll make great patsies for the peelers looking to close up some outstanding cases. And that, Mr. O'Shea, will take the heat off our boys, who will be freed up to get up to all sorts of shenanigans. Do you see? I do, Mr. Shaughnessy, I do. Beth hears Sean's bike clatter against the garden wall, and him quickly stomping up to the front step, opening the hall door with a crack. She goes to him. Sean looks flustered and on edge. What happened? asks Beth. I hit him, says Sean, still processing it all. Hit who? asks Beth, as her worry grows. Tug, I hit Huggins. Sergeant Huggins? asks Beth in disbelief. Yes, says Sean, standing still in full realisation. Good Jesus, says Beth. What'll I do? he asks. You'll have to go, she says, as the seriousness washes over her, dulling her tone. I know, says Sean solemnly. Quick, run upstairs and grab a bag of clothes, says Beth, as she clicks into action. Sean runs upstairs and grabs a cloth satchel and begins to stuff it with random items of clothing. Not knowing if it's a full change of clothes or just some shirts and socks. He grabs a small medal on a tin silver chain from his bedside table and throws it into the bag and runs back down the stairs. As he enters the living room, he finds Beth in the coal cupboard under the stairs, rooting around in the wooden supports above. With a rattle, she produces a small tin box and passes it to Sean. There, she says, take it. I can't. Go on, she says. But that's Maz, I've had enough of his money. Beth smiles. She'd want you to take it. Sean opens it and takes out a few rolled up notes and some coins. He places the empty tin on the table and puts the money in his short pocket and buttons it. You'd better go, says Beth softly. Sean stares at her, not knowing when or if he'll be back. Beth knows this could be the last time she sees him for some time and hugs him. Go on, she says. Sean walks to the door, taking one last look back. Tell Ma I said sorry, he says, as he smiles at Beth and turns and walks out the door. She stands still and listens to the sound of Sean's bike lifted from the wall and it trundle down the garden path and thump off the path onto the road. She closes the tin and carefully puts it back where she found it. It still maintains its reverence, despite being empty.